Uh, for those of you who are new, uh, my name is Lyndon. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we're making our way through Galatians. Uh, we've been doing this for a few weeks now, and now we'll find ourselves in Galatians chapter 3. And to help us with reading it, Ozzy. Today's reading is taken from Galatians chapter 3, from verse 15 to 26. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you opening up your word, expecting to hear you speak. And we come before you as finite creatures in need of a word from you. I ask that you would meet with us now, that wherever we're coming from, that you would commune with us and speak to us words of life and hope. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Ours is a bleeding and broken world. And we know this. Publicly and personally, globally and locally, there's no limit to the list of our problems, our sufferings. And obviously, in a secular age, we're given limited answers for all of this suffering and all its solutions. Solutions that are usually given in the form of new technologies, responding to our sufferings, uh, seeking to prolong life or alleviate pain. But in a Christian perspective, our understanding of suffering must go deeper than this. It must go deeper than mere physiology. In the perspective of the Christian faith, our suffering begins not with physical pain, but with a relational breakdown. 
with a break between creatures made by God and our Creator. All of our brokenness, all of the pain and all of the suffering of our world emerges in this perspective from our turning away from God and turning from God's ways, His laws. All of the world's sufferings emerge from this cosmic rebellion against the God who made us, the God who is light and life. To turn from him is only to find darkness and death. And the question then is, how do we get restored? In the midst of all of our loneliness, anxiety, sufferings as modern people, how will we ever get made whole? And where does such restoration come from? Where will we find our healing, our blessing in the midst of a world that feels cursed? And whether you're a Christian here or not this morning, I'd invite you to consider this question with me, even if from a distinctly Christian perspective. Because this is the question underlying our passage this morning. How do we Sinful, broken people get at all the blessings and promises of God. If we're in a world made by God, for God, and are estranged from God, rebels against God in God's own world, how might we return to God in such a way that we get access to all of the promises and blessings of God? Because God has promised some pretty lofty blessings in the scriptures to any and all who would follow after him. Promises of life, abundant and eternal life, forgiveness of sins, abiding joy, salvation. In other words, the promises of God given us are holistic. It isn't just about eternal life in some distant future, but also about reconciliation with God now, living the abundant life now, experiencing the promises, the peace, freedom, Joy of God now. And the question is, how do we get that? How do we get that blessing of God? And here in this passage, and really through the book of Galatians, Paul lays out for us two possible paths towards such blessing, such wholeness, such restoration, two possible paths that we can take. The first is what he calls living life by the law. And the second is what he calls living life by the promise. These are two paths given us. And these two paths have stood in tension throughout the history of God's people. Because while God did make unconditional promises at the beginning with Abraham, if you remember, The way the the story of the people of God begins is with God's promises to Abraham, I will bless you and make you a blessing, unconditional promise. This is what I will do for you, Abraham, and for all of your descendants. Well, that happens at the beginning. He also gives laws to Moses. We're told 430 years later. And these laws sound different. They sound more like this. If you obey me, then you will receive life. If you disobey, you will receive death. 
The righteous will inherit life. The unrighteous will inherit death. They will be cut off. The law then seems to be a break with the unconditional promises of God. And this is what Paul is sorting out here in our passage. How do we share in the blessings of God? Is it by trusting the promise or is it by following the law? These seem like two different paths. And if it's not by following the law, then what is the law for anyway? What was the law given for anyway? If it wasn't given for us to be able to establish our righteousness before God and find life and blessing through it. And I would suggest that these same questions still plague Christians today. We still wonder about our relationship to the law. If we don't do what God says, will we still be accepted by him? Is God's acceptance of us dependent on what we do? How holy we are, how righteous we are, how good and generous we are. And Paul's answer here is no. God's acceptance of us is not dependent on what we do. Because in Jesus Christ, we're shown that God's promises are unconditioned. That God's blessing, his forgiveness, his acceptance of us is not based on what we do, the law, but on what God has already done, his promise. That God... This is quite something that God has determined to make us his and that we're his by his determination and not by what we've done. And here at the beginning of our passage, Paul offers to us an illustration of all of this. To give a human example, he says, in verse 15, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. He goes on in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, right? 430 years after the promise given to Abraham, that unconditional promise of blessing given to Abraham, 430 years afterward, this law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise, he says. It's like this. A carpenter has a son. And when his son turns seven years old, the carpenter says to his son, Son, all that I have is yours. Everything I've been working for is coming to you. It's all yours. This is your inheritance. And five years later, he says to his son, it's time to start learning the family trade. Here are the rules. Here are the regulations. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to not do. Here's what time you need to be up. Here's what you need to bring. And the rules start to come. And the question is, do all of these new rules nullify the promise that the father made to his son in the first place? Do the rules represent a fundamental change in the Father's promise? And I think we would have to say, no. No, they don't. Here's what Paul is saying. God made his people a promise. 
And no amount of laws or rules or regulations, requests, specified expectations, none of this will ever change the word of God's promise. Instead, Paul tells us, these laws come in not to nullify the promise, but to serve God's promise. In sum, God promised his people blessing. It's a blessing accessed not by works, but by faith. And the law coming in through Moses does not change this. Instead, the law serves the promise. And this in two ways. And this is where we'll be spending the rest of our time this morning. First, the law prosecutes us in our sin. And second, the law prepares us for the gospel. The question that Paul opens up here is why then the law? What is the use of the law if it doesn't give us life in and of itself? And these are the two responses that we'll see here. The law prosecutes us in our sin. That's the first use that, the, that Paul highlights here. And second, the law prepares us for the gospel. So first, the law prosecutes or accuses or condemns us in our sin. After explaining that the law does not change or nullify the promises of God, Paul here raises the obvious question, why then the law? If the law wasn't given as a means of attaining God's blessing in the first place, why did God place this burden, and it was a burden, on his people? Think about all of the restrictions. I don't know how familiar people are here with the Old Testament. Think about all the restrictions on what to eat, seafood, and tattoos and Sabbath and sacrifice and clothing and all kinds of things. The Ten Commandments. Why the law? Why all these things if they weren't meant to give life? And here is Paul's answer. It was added, the law was added because of transgressions, he says in verse 19. The law given by God through Moses, was given, added to the promises of blessing because of transgression, Paul says. What on earth does that mean? Well, there are two ways that this can be taken, probably more. But the first is that the law was added in response to transgressions, right? The people are doing all kinds of bad things, And God says, well, in order to kind of mitigate all of these bad things and the destruction of the people, I'm going to add the law to kind of protect the people, mitigate the consequences of sin. I'll add the law for that reason. And while that's true, and the scriptures teach that that's one of the purposes of the law, it doesn't seem to be what Paul is getting at here. Instead, Paul here is saying, that the law was added because of transgressions in the sense that the law was given to bring about transgression or intensify transgression or you might say expose transgression. In other words, the law in this sense is given to expose sin for what sin is. The law is given to expose us in our sin. Since getting married, I've become increasingly aware that I'm probably not the most boundaried person in the world. That's that's to put it nicely. I tend to let things slide. All right. 
not prioritize the right things because I want to prioritize everything. And I was quick to prioritize, especially early in our marriage, uh, many other things other than my wife. And unfortunately, early in my marriage, I wasn't given a clear boundary right, of how much time to spend here and how to invest in the marriage versus invest in schoolwork and assignments and, um, and work beyond. Uh, I wasn't given that clear boundary in order to be able to just know right from wrong in any given situation. I was in a position where I then could wrong my wife without even knowing it. I could be unloving and call it loving. I could easily justify all of my actions. My wrong was not exposed, but had God just laid down a nice clear boundary for me, that would have made made things easier. Maybe, maybe not actually, maybe not. Uh, But it certainly would have exposed me as having done wrong, as having not prioritized my wife the way that I ought to have prioritized her. Okay, this is what Paul is getting at here, that the law was added because of transgressions to expose humans as those who do wrong, as those who transgress. And it's true. This is what we know about ourselves and our need for laws, that without laws, the people of God and people in general have no objective standard by which our lives can be measured. And in that kind of a world, we can always justify our actions. We have no law to tell us uh, where the boundaries begin and where they end. And it's here where God's law is added to our world. And we, all of humanity, stands exposed before the law of God. God lays out his rules, the highest of standards, clearly defined. And in their light, we find we're more sinful than we thought. God is more holy than we thought. We find God's standards higher than we thought. We find ourselves less capable, more insidious, less pure, more cunning than we ever thought. As the reformer Martin Luther says, the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. That was going to be my quote for the front of the bulletin. (laughs) And then I decided otherwise. The law was added because of transgressions in this sense. This is how law works in God's world. It exposes us. It fences us in as those who have rebelled against God and God's good and righteous ways. And this is what Paul is saying when he says then in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The law of God exposes you and it exposes me for what we are. This is difficult news. In a pluralistic, secular age, we don't like to think that there might be an objective standard by which our lives could be measured. And we certainly don't like to be exposed in our wrongdoing. But this is what the law of God does. This is how it functions. This is what it's for. It exposes us. 
Our lives are held up to the law of God, perfect, holy, righteous, and we stand. In all of our selfish dishonesty, gossip and greed, lust and pride, we stand exposed before him. And there's a good reason for all of this. Paul goes on in verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And here we find that not only does the law prosecute and expose us in our sin, but the law also prepares us for the greatest gift of grace. The law prepares us for Christ. Verse 22 again, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And here is the beauty of the gospel. It's not about some people being good and some people being bad and the good people going to heaven and the bad people going to hell and the good people being able to keep doing good things in order that they might be able to look down on the people who do bad things. That's not how it works. All of this is undercut by the gospel. Because here we find that there is no good versus bad. Instead, here, everyone, everyone is imprisoned under sin. Everyone exposed, all of us together, exposed as those in need of grace. And so everyone then invited as sinners in need of grace Invited not to try to be good enough, but to recognize the gift of God in Christ, given to those who would believe. It's not about you and your works, but about God and God's work. And you and I are then simply invited to receive his grace by faith. Paul goes on in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Speaking of the corporate, historical people of God, beginning with Abraham, down through the centuries, Paul is saying here that the law was given to us, the people of God, through Moses at a particular time in history to serve as a guardian, a tutor or a disciplinarian for a time. In other words, and this is really the big and important news of this passage and how it fits into the rest of the letter. In other words, the people of God were not made to live under the law forever. We're not made to live by the law forever. Look with me at verse 25. He goes on. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law, our guardian, was not given for its own sake, but in order to prepare us for something else, for something far greater. It's the carpenter with the son and all of the rules and demands that are placed on the son that these rules are not given to the son for the sake of themselves. 
Okay? The rules are not the point. All of these things that are put in order in order for the son to learn obedience, to learn the right way versus the wrong way, all of this given as the son's training under the father in order to then be able to walk into and inherit all of the promises, I shouldn't say in order to, but faithfully walking according to what the father has set forth for the, for the son, knowing that the inheritance has been promised to the son. There's a day when the son will no longer stand under the rules and discipline and chastisements of the father, but will come into his own and know all of the freedom of his identity as a son who's been given everything by his father. And so it is with the people of God. There would come a day, says Paul, in God's grand plan when his people would no longer stand under the law as a taskmaster, but would be free. A day when the law would have no power over them, no power to condemn, no power to imprison, no power to chastise or discipline. And here Paul tells us that this day has come. We're no longer under a guardian, he says, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. What does this mean for us? That we no longer stand under the law like children under the rules of their parents, but are now given full status as sons and as daughters in God's house. What does this mean for us? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means you're free. It means you're free. If you're prone to thinking that God could never accept you because you failed to live up to God's holy and righteous standards, you're free. God welcomes you, not because of anything that you've done, but according to his promise, his commitment to you, to love you. If you're prone to thinking that you need to do, do, do in order to be accepted by God, you're free. God has already done, done, done all that needs to happen for sinners to be reconciled to him, to have peace with him. If you're prone to thinking that God only really loves you when you keep his laws, you're free. His love for you is not conditioned by your obedience, but by his promise. This is Paul's point here. And so what does this mean for you here? who struggle, say, with ongoing sin, sexual addiction, a bad temper, cynicism, laziness, lust, arrogance, pride, whatever it is. It means that God, while he does not condone or excuse your sin, he loves you and is committed to you with an undying love. That even in your greatest and most shameful failures, that God, as a father to his children, stands with you and stands for you. That his love is not conditioned by your obedience, but by his promise. How? How can it be that we sinners, broken and fallen, 
self-centered, self-righteous, even God-hating, God-indifferent? How can it be that we are free, that we have no need to earn God's favor, that we have no need to do, do, do in order to be accepted, that we, in all of our failings, in all of our screw-ups, in all of our failed prayer lives, failed devotional lives, failed parenting, failed marriages, failed integrity among all other failures. How is it that we can be freely loved and accepted by the fierce and holy God? When the law says clearly, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, when the law says that all of those who sin stand cursed under God, deserving even to be hanged on a tree. How is it then that Paul can say here that we, the people of God, have been exempted from this curse? And the answer is only because there is one who wasn't exempted from this curse. Only because there is one who came under the law and fulfilled the law did all that the law required us to do and still took the curse of God for us. As Paul says earlier, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The good news for us this morning, is that Jesus Christ, Son of God, Word of the Father, has taken both the commands and the curse of God for us. On himself, on our behalf, cursed and hanged on a tree, that we might look on him and live. Ours is a bleeding and broken world, And our hope is not in newer technologies. It's not in prolonged life or even reduced pain. But our hope is in a bleeding and broken God who stands with us and for us. Even that we might share in all of the promises of God and all of his blessings. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as those who need this kind of news. We are prone to living by and under the law, to seeking to earn your favor, to try to get at blessings and the good life by our own efforts. And you stand before us as one who calls us to another way, to simple faith and trust that you've made a way for us. Would you work in us by your spirit to help us to hope in your promises to trust in them with the decisions that we make, 
and the way that we live our lives. We need your spirit to fill us and make us new. We ask that you would do all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.